Naomi Hirahara, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your new novel is a standalone thriller set in 1944 Chicago called Clark and Division. Would you set this up for readers, please? Yeah, so Clark and Division refers to an intersection in Chicago. It follows the Ito family, a Japanese-American family from Los Angeles in this area called Tropical. I love the name. It's not called Tropical anymore. It's around these cities called Glendale and also Los Angeles. And it follows the family from there into Manzanar. They're incarcerated in Manzanar. And there's early release. So the older sister, Rose, is able to go to Chicago which happens to be the number one destination for these young Nisei, second generation Japanese Americans. And the rest of the family follow. And the story is told from the younger sister, Aki's perspective. And so she and her parents arrive in Chicago in 1944, only to discover something tragic has happened to Rose. And the novel's about how Aki finds out the truth of what happened, as well as to carry her parents through this very traumatic transitional time from the wartime camp. It's also a coming of age for Aki as well. She discovers a lot about herself. She discovers she's tenacious. She's not afraid to talk to strangers on behalf of her sister. She is a little relentless. It's kind of great to see as she evolves through the story. In terms of writing something historical, it can't, especially a novel, it can't just be about the history. Because I also write nonfiction. You might as well write a nonfiction book. Mm -hmm. There has to be some kind of narrative, some other kind of relationship that you're exploring. So I was interested in the younger sister, older sister dynamic. And Aki's always in the shadow of her older sister. If you notice in the beginning, her older sister is center stage. <laughs> and you don't even know the younger sister's name for a while. And what's interesting is I'm actually the older sister and I don't have any sisters. I only have a brother who's eight years younger. My younger brother idolizes me. So I say we have a really great relationship. <laughs> but I have a lot of friends who are the younger sister. And I, I think that's just the dynamic of friendship. Sometimes you gravitate towards other people in the same birth order. And sometimes it's the opposite, right? And even in relationships. So yeah, I was just wondering what would it be like if, especially during the World War II period of time for Japanese Americans, where friendships are fraught, especially interracial ones, you can't freely be yourself in all ways. And that's why the family unit is so important. And the older sisters, quote, the more attractive one, the, the one the guys are all chasing after, the one who has strong opinions about politics, who's more, quote, patriotic and Aki, as the younger sister, is trying to, you know, she has actually opinions too, but she's never had the opportunity to really voice them and to kind of sit and stand and walk in them. And that's what this um, Clark and Division, this neighborhood, which, by the way, was a transitional neighborhood for the early, quote, resettlers. Chicago, before World War II, there was only 400. Japanese Americans. By the mid 40s, there are 20,000. So if you can imagine what an experience for the city, this uh, very inner ethnic city, and what an experience for these people who had been in a camp with thousands, literally thousands of people of their 
same ethnicity, you know, in this confined, they're either in the desert or in the swamplands behind barbed wire. All of a sudden, you're released in Chicago, where, you know, it's kind of a notorious city. They're, the average age of these young people are like in their mid-20s. And then what do mid-20, you know, what do people do? What is the universal story? You know, you want to hang out with their friends, you know, you're looking for romance, you get into trouble. And that's what happened to the early ones that arrived in Chicago. And that's the thing, when Rose arrives in 1943 in Chicago, Manzanar is still open. Her family is still in camp. She's not the only character in this novel with family still in camp. Roy Tanai, who is a family friend, his father is still being detained separately from his mother and sister in two separate camps. And can we just take a minute and talk about internment? Because not everyone has, I think, a complete understanding of what it meant. There were 10 internment camps around the United States. Over 100,000 Japanese Americans were sent there from the West Coast by executive order in the shadow of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And they weren't allowed back to the West Coast. And this is why Chicago was one of the cities where Nisei, second generation Japanese Americans, ended up. How much research did you need to do for this specific book? It was funny. My publisher, Soho, when they did this write-up, they said, Naomi Hirohara uses her 35 years of research into this book. And I was going, 35 years? That's a lot of years. But then when I really thought about it, I had started work at the Rafu Shimpo newspaper, which is a Japanese-American daily newspaper in the 1980s after I had graduated uh, from Stanford. And this was working in the community. I mean, people might look at me, oh, you're Japanese-American, so you naturally know everything, which is false, of course. You have to have will and time and commitment to kind of dig into these stories. So I was covering these community of people. It was actually during the redress and reparations movement. Mm -hmm. So this is a time where the Nisei and the Issei, the first generation, were going up to microphones during congressional hearings. So in LA, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and voicing for the first time, this is decades after mm -hmm. World War II, what had happened to them. And in terms of the mass incarceration camps, President Roosevelt himself called them concentration camps. And of course, it's separate from the death camps that were in Europe related to the Jewish genocide. But that term was used as a place to concentrate people. And there was no sort of hearing. And you just had a drop of Japanese blood. And there are people who are mixed ancestry. There were white people, mostly women who, white women who happened to be married to Japanese men who were incarcerated as well and their mixed race children. And then there were these other camps that were actually internment, the strict um, definition of internment, which is of alien people. And they were tended to be like if you were a Buddhist priest, if you taught Japanese school, if you were a judo teacher. And I also have done a nonfiction book on Terminal Island, which was a fishing colony, about 3,000 people. So they were targeted very early. So this is right on the bombing of Pearl Harbor. They were knocking on the doors of the leaders. So obviously, the authorities, the FBI already had these names. It was already kind of predestined almost. And so they were taken. What I find interesting, and people may not be aware of this, is how the leadership in, is kind of removed early on. And all the pioneers, all the people who had started the businesses and led the organizations, 
they were torn away from the community. So now you have younger people who have to fulfill that roles of leadership. You have a lot of women, you have children. So that's how you're able to force this mass incarceration because who's left? And the Ito family of Clark and Division, they choose to surrender themselves and go to Manzanar directly. They are not kept at the Santa Anita racetrack, which is where many of the families who went to Manzanar were first kept here down in Southern California. And they think it's okay as long as we can choose to stay in California. They think at some point they'll go home. They have stored dad's tools with a colleague and they have hidden the silver with another friend. And they think, okay, we're just going to go home at some point. And then they get shipped to Chicago. And they're not even allowed to go as a family because you're only allowed in groups of fewer than three people. And there are four people in their family. So Rose is sent first and she's sending postcards to her family in Manzanar. She's trying to make a life for them and set things up and things go awry. And in comparison to the Ito family, there's a family called Nakasone, mm. Art Nakasone, who mm. becomes Rose's love interest and seems yeah. like a really groovy character. He's yeah. a good guy. He is a good, Art's a good yes. guy. Let's give he Art is. some credit. Yes. But let's talk about the difference between the Nakasone family and the Ito family for a minute, because the Nakasones are much more Midwestern. They're Chicago. They are Nisei, but they're much more mixed. Yeah, because I you know I mentioned there were like 400 Japanese Americans, so their experience is going to be different. There was interracial marriage in the Midwest, unlike California. I mean, we'd like to say, oh, California is so liberal and open, but if you looked at the most virulent anti-Asian legislation, it was birthed in California. So our, he lives in the South Side. He knows African-American boys that he went to school with, white kids. And actually his uncle has married a white woman. And that I found in one of these Arcadia books, there's like a Japanese Americans of Chicago. And there was a little section profiling an interracial couple. And the white woman for a while had lost her citizenship because she had married a Japanese person and they had to really fight to get her citizenship back. So I thought that was kind of a fascinating contrast. I'm a total pet lover. So of course I had to integrate a dog in Aki's life and the Nakasone family, they're full of all these animals and they're all full of all this food and these nice plates that match and everything that Aki had lost along the way. It's so surreal. It's like, okay, we are a threat to national security, yet she visits Art's family and everything there is still intact. So it's jarring for her. And she's trying to kind of uh, reconcile the contrast. There is racism in Chicago as well. Mm -hmm. There still exists a mutual aid society before World War II, Japanese Americans could not be buried in mm -hmm. regular cemeteries. So there's this Montrose Cemetery, which I visited, a beautiful cemetery. Mm -hmm. The thing about Chicago, because of the rain, everything's green, but they have a really nice mausoleum. It says Japanese mausoleum. And I was able to actually see the structure. Chicago really discouraged any kind of concentration of people during World War II. And they also very much discouraged an official Japantown. Even though I found this offensive book called 
Chicago Confidential. It was written in the 1950s. It was talking about, you know, geisha girls. You want to get a geisha girl? But it was actually kind of informative to see what the mainstream view of Japanese Americans were. They talked about the 100th floor, 42nd. That was the all Nisei military team in very uh, complimentary ways. But they, but they called this the Clark and Division area kind of like a little Tokyo. And I never saw that in any, anything else. I love eBay. I was getting maps and um, postcards and all those kind of things and piecing together because there's not much there. Mm-hmm. And it's very different from the times I've gone to the Pacific Northwest. You see plaques. They're marking, oh, this is where people were gathered together before they were sent off to camp. But there's none of that kind of marking in Chicago. And it's this unknown history, even to Chicagoans. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I walked Chicago and Division, and Eric Matsunaga, he was one of my guides. But when I walked on my own, there was like a L.A. tanning center. That's how much you know, the, the neighborhood has, has changed. And I do want to point out for listeners too, there is a reference section with further reading some of the research that you did, and some of it is really accessible. It's not all demographics, and and there are a lot of people who are doing this work. And I just want to shout out Densho for being a really great online resource for anything to do with the camps. They've been doing some really good work, and um, there's a lot there. So shout out to them for that. How did this novel start for you? It feels like Aki's voice is really driving the whole thing, but did it start with the idea of displacement and resettlement and being an outsider? Or did you really start with the sisters and say, okay, I've got these two characters, I've got their voices, let's have some fun? No, it was the displacement, but I wasn't thinking of Chicago. I had actually written a short story for Megan Abbott for the small press called Hell of the Woman. It was very uh, noir, very dark. Mm -hmm. And the Nisei woman is actually from Terminal Island. It's set in 1951, and they're back in L.A. They're all former beauty queens, and (laughs) things are not so beautiful now. There's a body, a chopped up body in a suitcase. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's how it ends. So I don't think people in the community really, oh, no, I don't think they really read it, but it was not something that they embraced. And I understand it's really dark. And so my goal was, okay, I want to do a a novel about this experience that not only, quote, outsiders can follow, but people who are in the inside can say, you know what, that reminds me of my aunt or my great aunt mm-hmm. or my grandma. That aspect of my writing, I think it's true with my earlier, my Masarai books, which is a character like my father. It's a LA gardener and Hiroshima survivor who solves crimes. It's been interesting that series was seven books and people either respond, this is a world I never knew existed or else the other one, it's like, I know this guy, you know, he's like my uncle. He's like my neighbor. He's like my gardener. And I think that's very telling when you're getting those two polar opposite responses that there's a split in our world. We're not really talking or sharing with one another because why would you get that? Obviously one side doesn't even know that this very intimate, emotional world exists. So that was my goal. But it's hard. Like, how do I write an everyday person? I mean, with Moss, he was older and a curmudgeon. So that made him kind of charming. But how do I write like a 20-year-old woman in a very interesting way, who's not like a total victim, who's complicated in her own way? So that was my big search. And I actually attempted another novel 
that was based on the short story I had written called The Beauties of 1941. But it just didn't come together. I had six voices. Um, and they, they're all me saying, they go, oh, I can't separate them. And everyone was attracted to the rebel, the woman that was most on the edge. And I was going, nah, I don't, I really want to get more of a typical person. I know a lot of times in literature, we want the total outline. Aki, to her credit, she's not average. Yet, when you look at her on the outside, you would never know her dedication, her uh, risk-taking ability, and those kind of things. So I co-wrote a book with my friend Heather Linquist, Life After Manzanar for Payday Books. I knew about people had gone to Chicago. I knew a lot of people who had been born in Chicago or their parents had been in Chicago. So I knew anecdotally that there were many people had gone. But then I saw this report by the Chicago Resettlers Committee, I think it's 1946, and they were saying, we have to do something about the delinquency. And they mentioned babies born out of wedlock, abortions, which was illegal at the time, a stick-up man, a peeping Tom, and a, quote, sexual mania. So as a mystery writer, I was going, whoa, that's like a treasure trove. Mm -hmm. All this crime... And I think I am writing against the model minority myth because there's not as many immigrants that are coming from Japan. And my mother's from Japan, so I'm kind of unusual. But a lot of my peers, their grandparents came from Japan. They're Americans. I'm American too, but they're Americans by multi, multi-generations. I so appreciated the fact that we were allowed to be messy and yeah. no one was studying for a math test and no one was looking to get into an Ivy. This is a story of survival in a lot of ways. And yeah. this is people finding jobs. At one point, Rose, a key sister, ends up working in a bra factory and then she's working in a candy factory. And she hadn't planned on any of those things, but she needed to make some money. Aki's mom and dad end up cleaning buildings. Her dad has a more circuitous route to get to cleaning buildings, but this is not what any of them had planned. And it's it's become a very sort of hard scrabble experience for them. It was really important to me to capture that hard scrabble life as you described. And it's really interesting as I got into the characters, they responded to things that surprised me. Mm -hmm. For instance, the Quakers, they were instrumental in helping Japanese Americans. And I personally am very grateful to them. But when Aki encounters them, she doesn't have the same level of appreciation. Mm -hmm. She just feels like we shouldn't even be in this situation. And I think that kind of showed you uh, her level of pride. And her father had been an early immigrant to America and had a good position at a produce market. So in some ways, they're a prideful family. And why not? They were established mm -hmm. and they were middle class. This is a middle class family. And Aki and her sister went to school with mostly white people, which is different than the other characters that I've written about. So that was interesting how the little microaggressions that they encounter. I, I'm sure that people today can relate to them as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned both Art Nakasone and Roy Tanai before, and you mentioned the 442nd. I just want to go back to this for a second. The 442nd is one of the most decorated battalions in American military history. It was made up of Nisei soldiers, second generation Japanese Americans, whose families were in camp. They were given a choice, either join the American army 
or you could become what was known as a no-no boy. And John, John Okada actually wrote a really terrific novel about this years ago called No-No Boy. The men are struggling in a way in this community that the women are not necessarily because they're put in a position. And in fact, art is drafted. Roy's path is a little different. The 442nd, when I say incredibly decorated, I, that's where Daniel Inouye lost his arm. Uh, this former senator from Hawaii, he lost his arm fighting with the 442nd. They were instrumental in a couple of different pieces of the European theater. And yet their families are in camp or they have been released to places like Chicago where they are not welcome particularly and they are not fully prepared to live their lives. And yet here they are trying to prove that they are patriots, that they are in fact Americans when they have been born here. And there was never a case of spying proven against a Japanese American anywhere in the United States during the course of World War II and after. My late father-in-law was part mm -hmm. of the 100th for 42. Mm -hmm. There's Easter eggs, very personal ones. Actually, my mother was the Japanese immigrant, but she, mm -hmm. her, most of her, many of her friends were Nisei. So their names are kind of sprinkled throughout the whole book. Mm -hmm. And even my late father-in-law situation, there's an Easter egg towards the end referring to his service and his size and other things. The war is still going on. It's 1944. So mm -hmm. I think for me, what was really heartbreaking was just to see there's like Sadao Munemori, there's a, a Medal of Honor winner who uh, was killed and he was in Manzanar. But to have the funeral in camp, what an irony, just so sad. And how many Gold Star mothers were in camp? And I wanted to definitely get that flavor for people. And yeah, there were draft resistors. Um, I don't go into that facet of history, but there's a lot of great books on people who said for constitutional reasons that they had to fight against the draft. And they, they were saying, well, let us out of camp and then we'll fight. In Art's situation, and I don't want to give any spoilers on him, mm -hmm. but because he was not in camp, mm -hmm. he was a free person in Chicago. So his perspective is going to be a little different mm -hmm. than the ones who were in camp. Do you have a favorite piece of this story? It's not a typical uh, mystery in that it doesn't start off with the dead body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually, I did have discussions with my editor about that because it's very chronological, but my agent especially felt that we kind of had to see the family before things changed. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's true to Aki. I'm not trying to fit this mystery genre into the book. She is a, she is a detective. She's an investigator. But I think the thing she does is it's realistic. It's like what any concerned sister might do. And then what I like about it is it also shows her desire to find love. And some things may be pushed because she wants an escape from her situation. But I think that's normal. It makes sense. And I think as we are in this pandemic situation, there's a lot of parallels. There's parallels in the sense that this pandemic has affected people in all different ways. And some people are seeing the effects acutely right now, whereas some of us may not see it until later. And that's why the mystery genre works, because for Aki, she can't push this away 
and deal with it later. You know, everyone else is trying to be optimistic and create a future for themselves. But for her, she has to look at where are we at now? Why are we at this? And go physically to all these places and sort things out. So that's why I really appreciate the genre and that it gives Aki agency and even Moss for the longest time. It's like, how am I going to get him out of his easy chair? It's got to be a crime that affects people close to him. And that's what pushes him out. So the same is true for Aki, because these are people who are dealing with trauma. And I think one of the big questions that Aki is really wrestling with and to a certain extent, her sister Rose and even Roy or maybe to a lesser degree art is how much do you owe your family? Hmm. What's your responsibility to your family? How do you take care of your parents? And I don't mean in the honorific sense of burning incense after they're gone and making sure the picture's on the wall, but Aki is dealing with the fact that her dad has a drinking problem. He has a gambling problem. He's not in a good space. Her mother is very, very shut down, but also very concerned about appearances still and what other people will think of her and her husband and her daughters. And yet they've just come out of this extraordinary situation and she really genuinely cares what the neighbors think. I think that's how, especially the Nisei society for women, they're able to hang together. When I worked at the Ralph Schimpel, I noticed that the people we're putting on our front page were mostly men. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to work against it and integrate women's stories more. Like we we tried to do like for Valentine's Day, do stories on Nisei, like how did you meet your spouse? And the reporter would talk to them, but then inevitably they'll come back and they go, can you strike that one part? You know, and this was just about love. It was not controversial, but, but I kind of see that tendency with my mother as a Japanese immigrant that for them, what's life-sustaining is their community. And if they are deemed maybe a little improper or they or the gossip mill starts to whirl around them, then that has a lot of consequences for them. Whereas for men, a lot of them are like, oh, I don't care what anyone thinks, you know, that kind of more independent attitude. So I do have compassion for actually Aki's mother. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really incredible is there is something laudable that she tries to maintain her dignity, no matter what kind of work she does. I see that with people, Nisei and immigrant people mm-hmm. who are doing bl- blue collar work that sometimes they're embarrassed about it, but sometimes they sit with it and say, especially to the children, don't demean what I'm doing because this is supporting the family. Filial piety. I mean, some of it, Aki, you know, is literally trying to find her voice mm-hmm. and it's kind of cheesy, but I have gone through that same, <laughs> same journey myself. And I think being the child of the immigrant, you know, you are essentially being very protective. We are the uh, interpreters of, for our, our parents, our elders, and we just kind of fall into that role, but it might not be the healthiest for us <laughs> to always do that. So at, at a certain point, it's like we have to put our interpreter hat down and say, well, I have actually an opinion on this. And I have feelings, not only you, <laughs> and kind of assert assert those feelings. And so I think that part of Aki may be, uh, for me, maybe not the sister part, but her voice may be more autobiographical. And there are other Nisei women in this sort of makeshift community, because 
everyone's finding their space. This is not mm -hmm. a cohesive community yet mm -hmm. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Everyone is still scarred from whichever camp they've been released from. There has been other kinds of tragedy in the community. And it's, it's a really rough moment for a lot of people. But there are young Nisei women who are very vocal about what they want and where they're going because they've gotten to a point where they don't feel like they are beholden to other women first, because that's a lot of how the previous community of the camps was sort of taking care of itself, sort of policing each other mm -hmm. and the women policing behavior and that kind of thing. And now they're in Chicago. I'm thinking of Marge specifically, actually. Mm -hmm. she, does, she doesn't really take to Aki or her sister and has mm -hmm. some very specific feelings about both of them. But she's just sort of this brassy Chicago gal now. She happens to be Nisei. She's no longer in the camps, but she is absolutely making her own way in the world and saying, all right, you guys can catch up or not. There's a lot of noir in Clark and Division. Would you call this a classic noir? Or no. Yeah. Okay. I, I wouldn't, but it was, I sat down with the professor who had read the book. It's always interesting when someone like a specialist comes in and she actually said, oh, Rose, she's a total femme fatale. I go, really? But then I started to understand certain things like kind of unknowable, like who is this woman? Mm -hmm. And I kind of saw that and she talked about Tokyo Rose too. And she asked if that was intentional on my part, and which it wasn't. I'm from Pasadena. We have a lot of roses. <laughs> I've always loved the name Rose. So mm -hmm. that's why I put it in. I don't know how does one's subconscious kind of work? Who knows? But yeah, there are noir references for sure. There are weapons. <laughs> there are seedy characters. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love how Aki is forced to go into those dark places where an, a nice young Nisei woman would never go. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, some of that might be autobiographical too, just as my work as a reporter. There's a lot of homelessness around the little Tokyo area. And, and um, so I went into a lot of these spaces and some people going, Naomi, why are you going in there? You know, and it's, it was my job and I'm fascinated and I want to hear from the people who live in these different neighborhoods. I think my journalistic experiences is probably woven into every one of my book because it was such a seminal experience. And I think it was wonderful because I did a deep dive into a community. It wasn't like a generalist where you have to kind of know a little about everything. I mean, you do in sense that Oh, I'm covering ballroom dancing. Oh, I'm covering crime. You know, in terms of the topics, they were varied. But in terms of the people, you dug deep and it was, oh, there's Peruvians who were incarcerated in America. You keep digging. It's like, oh, I, I never knew about this experience or that experience. And I think it's informed all the different characters that exist in a book like Clark and Division. Who are some of your literary influences? I mean, I feel a little Walter Mosley in here, but that might be me. Well, I'm a huge fan of Walters, but mm -hmm. also the 1940s and that having to walk the line between what the community was like and what your characters would do that's true to the period, but also what you know they need to do and where the story needs to go. Yeah, certainly. And I say this often, I credit a lot of African-American detective novelists, starting with actually Chester Himes. I'm a huge Chester Himes fan and I dig. He actually has a direct connection with Japanese Americans because he lived in a Nisei home in uh, Boyle Heights during World War II. 
It's really fascinating. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and she was a writer herself, uh, uh -huh. more of a, like a journalist. So I love Chester Himes, like use of language. That's not really represented in Clark and Division, but just the the vibrancy of mm -hmm. the people and the community. And it's some people have said, oh, this is interesting. You have mostly Nisei characters. I don't know what they're asking, <laughs> if that's a liability or what, but I think like with Chester Himes, it's okay to do a deep dive. You don't need this white person coming in and explaining everything to everybody. I appreciate that. And certainly Walter Mosley and another woman, Barbara Neely, she wrote more cozy mysteries, but she was writing about the underclass. But I'm influenced by a lot of things. Also a lot of comparative literature, some Japanese lit. I don't know how it's filtered in to my mm -hmm. writing. But I think they have influenced me, maybe Sose, Natsume Soseki and mm -hmm. Tanabata and some of these folks. But. So, okay, Kawabata, Soseki, what about Tanazaki? I'm personally a huge fan of the Sisters Makioka. And also some of his stories get really dark, really, really yeah. dark. And now I'm trying to think who wrote Some Preferred Nettles. I don't know if that's Tanazaki or Tanazaki. I think that's Kobo Abe. No. No, it's one of the, but, oh, but Kobo Abe, I took a, a, a Japanese uh -huh. literature course and we looked at how Japanese people looked at the West and that included Mishima, included Tanabata, included Tanazaki, included all these folks. And I think that was important for me to just see how narrative, although I write pretty much, you know, in this genre, but I can't help but to think all those different ways to write character. And, it, it, you know, it probably bled through me in some ways. I don't know how it's being digested in my system and represented in my work, but I think it was eye-opening. It's like, oh, you don't have to approach narrative in this traditional Western way. And actually, some prefer nettles is Tanazaki. I just double-checked. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I should remember that. I really do quite like his stuff, and I should totally yeah. remember that. Yeah. What's next for you? There's going to be a follow-up to Clark and Division. <laughs> We're still calling it a standalone, but there will be a follow-up. And um, I'm going to be doing a deep dive into that. You know, I, I like to write different kinds of things that kind of clean the palette and also adjust my mood. There are times writing Clark and Division, like when I was reading some of it over, especially in the pandemic, because we're in confinement, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it did move me emotionally. It was hard sometimes. That's why when I escape to like a Hawaii more cozy mystery, it's kind of a nice to take that ride. So that one, An Eternal Lay is coming out in March. I'm doing a writer for hire project for running press and the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center. And it's called We Are Here. It's like 30 inspirational Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. What's really interesting about that project, and it's for middle grade readers, is 50% of the people are actually Pacific Islanders. So it's not like, oh, let's just sprinkle a couple. <laughs> let's call it API and just put, you know, so... I learned a lot. It still has to be um, edited, but I, I finished the first draft. But it was just 
kind of interesting for me to see the parallels, just my, my parents uh, being atomic bomb survivors. And then you go to like the Marshall Islands and you've seen what's happened to that island. So um, even though I'm of East Asian descent, there are parallels that I see with like the mm -hmm. Pacific Islanders, especially in that way. So that be coming out next fall. I, I like doing things for young people too. And it's great for me just to learn. So I appreciate that. Those are kind of the projects that are coming up for me. I'm so excited to hear about a sequel. All right, we won't call it a sequel, but follow-up. It's a follow-up. Okay, follow-up follow to Clark and Division. That's really exciting. That's yeah. that's really, really exciting. What do you want readers to know about Clark and Division? Oh, that's really interesting. It's really about the humanity of Japanese Americans during World War II, both good and bad. What makes us human, right? It's not all good. It's not all bad. It's just kind of a mix. And what people did to adjust to that transition and in what ways the community assisted them and in what ways people felt like they had to escape the community to survive. So just all these varied uh, responses to what had happened to them. But they all have my respect, whatever they decided to do. And Aki has a really terrific story arc. You really see her go from being baby of the family to her own person. Yeah. And it's really true. She's plucky. She makes a few mistakes as she's running around. She makes some friends. She's pretty great. I can't wait to see what happens next for oh, her. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm glad you have that response. And yeah, and then she also has um, interracial friends, which mm -hmm. is a, a new experience for her because in, in LA, she was pretty much around her family and the Japanese American produce market. So even through this harsh situation, this new place, it kind of helps to open up her world as well. And Nancy and Phyllis are pretty great characters in their own right. And will let people yeah. introduce themselves yeah. as it were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Naomi Hirohara, thank you so much. The new novel is Clark and Division and it's out now. Thank you for having me. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.